You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. Have you ever received a gift that you really didn't want? Have you ever received a gift that you really didn't want? I can remember um, I was about 13 or 14. I was getting to that age where I started to care about what my clothes looked like. And my grandma had gotten me this like sweater that was from like 1973. And I was like, I I don't want that. I I don't want that at all. And so I had to begin to, to, how do I tell my parents that I don't, I'm not going to wear that. Uh, to school because I'll get picked on and I don't want to get picked on so I'm not going to wear that so how do I tell my parents about this was a great gift but I don't really want to receive it well uh, maybe the Lord is uh, is humorous because um, you know Ash and I start dating and we uh, you know end up getting married and, and I, it's like I'm getting gifts now I've realized that I'm not so good at, at getting gifts either and there are gifts that uh, she would say, oh, I'm not sure I really want that to receive that gift either. And so I have had to learn, you know, hey, we're, we need to have some list around the house. What, what do you want for your birthday? What do you want for Mother's Day? What do you want for Christmas? Because I want to make sure I get you a gift that you receive and don't take back to the store. Uh, that would not make me feel uh, very loved in that moment. But uh, there are times we, we get gifts that we received differently, right? There are things that we, that one person may say, yeah, I would gladly receive that gift. Uh, but the, for some of us may say, no, I don't, I don't want to receive that gift. How we view the item or the gift is how we will receive it. And so I see husbands and wives looking at each other. That was not to, to cause tension with you. Uh, that was just to bring up the illustration of how we receive things. Uh, you may need to go home, husbands, and apologize today uh, for doing that. So either way, we we receive things and how we see them. How we view them matters. And so we come here to uh, Luke's gospel account in which we see Jesus and he's going to enter into Jerusalem. And there are a couple of things that I want you to see this morning. And in our text, first of all, Jesus receives different responses as he approaches the city of Jerusalem as the Messiah King. And if you're a disciple today, We talk about making mature disciples. We all want to grow in maturity together. If you're a disciple today who's called on the name of Jesus, here's what you need to know. Jesus must be received as the humble Messiah King who offers peace to us. There are all kinds of images of Jesus in the world. There are all kinds of thoughts about Him. We must make sure that we see Him correctly. We must make sure that we see him correctly because the right reception of Jesus must be preceded by seeing Jesus rightly. We must see him how the Bible declares him to us to be. We must not conjure up our own ideas about who Jesus is. We must not let the world tell us who Jesus is. We must see him and how God has revealed himself in his word for who Jesus is. Jesus is the Messiah. He is a king. And he comes humbly to us. And so, as Luke, as he's writing this narrative, he, he's entering into uh, what some would call the Holy Week. And we pick up in verse 28, and, and so what he does, he sets up the story. So, let's look there together. 
And let's see how Luke sets up the story. He says, when he had heard, uh, said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. So Jesus had just shared a parable about his authority. And in that parable, you'll see it uh, previously in, in Luke. You see how Jesus talks about he's received the authority to become king. And so after he said those things, as he approached Bethpage and Bethany at, at a place called the Mount of Olives, right? So this place, this Mount of Olives is the home to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, people that are very close to Jesus. And it's a familiar place in Luke's gospel account. But what you may not know is that the Mount Olives is spoken about in the Old Testament, specifically in Zechariah. And in Zechariah 14, there's an image depicting the coming of the Messiah on the Mount of Olives. And is in this chapter that the Messiah comes to rescue his people from bondage and bondage from the nations. There is a warlike imagery of the Messiah in Zechariah 14. But here Jesus does not come as a warlike Messiah. He does not come to place Israel on equal footing with Rome. No, he comes to deliver Israel from a more deadly enemy, our common enemy sin and death. This is the backdrop of Jesus entering into Jerusalem. He comes as the Messiah, but not as a Messiah wielding a sword, a Messiah who's offering peace. And so he says, look there, continuing verse 29, he sent two of his disciples and said, go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has sat. Jesus directs them to get a young donkey And he he wants them to go get this donkey because it's never been ridden before, which symbolizes humility and peace. And so Jesus, he does not come riding in on a horse like a king or a general would have. When we talk about entering into the city, right, if you were a king or a general, if you'd been off to war, they would have come in on a big white horse showing that they are strong and mighty and powerful. Jesus comes in on a a donkey, because he comes in humble peace. Jesus says, untie it and bring it. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, say, the Lord needs it. Jesus does not arrive in Jerusalem as his royal, his royal highness, but he arrives in Jerusalem as his royal lowness. Jesus comes in on a donkey, and much like Paul describes in Philippians chapter 2, Jesus comes humbly, so humbly that he would submit himself to the point of death, and death on a dirty Roman cross. That's the humble nature of our Messiah. This is where Jesus is heading. So his disciples go. Look at verse 32. So those who were sent left and found it just as he had told them, And as they were untying the colt, the owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? The Lord needs it, they said. Now often this passage can bring up the debate of, Does Christ foreknow these events? Does he know what's going to happen? And therefore tell his disciples what to say? Or has he prearranged this exchange? And I personally believe that Jesus foreknows the events. He knows what's happening. He's in full control. Here's why. Luke is demonstrating that Jesus is the Messiah, right? He even plays here, we don't see it in our English translation, and it says the owners, that's literally lords, the lords of the donkey, they're lowercase lords, but who needs it? 
the Lord, the one who's in full control. He's the one who needs this. I believe that Jesus is in full control of the situation. And either way, the passage uh, is, is speaking to Jesus coming as the Messiah King. Luke is very clear. Jesus is, if he is the Messiah, then he is in control. And so it would actually weaken his argument if Jesus doesn't know the situation. And so often people like to look at Jesus and say, he's a great teacher. He's a great prophet. He's a great example of faith. But no, we must go further than that. The gospel accounts declare, and let me say very explicitly, that Jesus is the Messiah. They are very clear, if you read them, that Jesus is God in the flesh, fully God and fully man. The events of Easter prove this. That we believe that, yes, Jesus is the Son of God, but we believe He's God in the flesh because He was raised three days later. And that the only, the only being in the universe that could do that is God Himself. And so we must not come to this and think that, yes, Jesus is a great example. If you are struggling to believe in the Christian faith because you're like, I just don't know if Jesus is who He says He is, let me be very clear. The Bible says that Jesus is God. And that is really good news for us today. Why? Because Jesus is in full control of every detail in the universe. Jesus is in full control of his journey to the cross. This is no accident. The triune God of the universe is in control, not just of his journey to the cross, but of every detail in your life. Today, there may be you may be feeling like, ah, I don't know what to do. I don't know if, I don't know if God's there. I don't, I don't know what to, how to go on. God is fully in control of your life. Even down to the details, just like the disciples and how they were supposed to answer. God sees you. He knows you. And He has a plan for you in His grand plan. You can trust this Jesus. You can trust this Messiah. The question, though, for us, and what Luke is driving at, is how will Jesus be received? And so what happens here is that Luke provides three different kinds of responses, three different kinds of receptions of who Jesus is. And it causes us to wonder, what is our response going to be? So, as we walk through the rest of the story, three responses to Jesus. Number one, the response of the disciples rejoicing the response of the disciples rejoicing look there at verse 35 then they brought it to jesus and after throwing their clothes on the colt they helped jesus get on it and as they were going along they were spreading the clothes on the road as they bring the colt to jesus they help him get on it they place their clothes on it, most likely for a saddle and they understand what they are doing they understand the significance of this event they understand what it symbolizes for him to get on this donkey and to ride into Jerusalem. And they spread their clothes out, much like a parade. They say, this is, this is Jesus as he enters into the city. A question still remains, though. Who is this crowd? Who is this crowd of the disciples? We often hear about this crowd that is praising him. We hear about this same crowd. They ended up turning on Jesus when it comes to his trial. But that's actually not true. Although that most of his disciples, except John, deserted him. These disciples, they, they follow him. 
they, they know him. They truly are seeking after him. We've heard, you, you've heard about the crowds, right, in the gospel accounts. You have the big crowd that follows him. You have the 72, which Jesus commissioned uh, to go out. And you get down to the 12, the 12 disciples. And you even get down to three when you think of Peter, James, and John. And so there, it's not just the 12 that were following Jesus. It was much more than that. And so this crowd, I believe, is following Jesus. They are disciples. And although that this crowd of disciples will be overtaken during Jesus' trial, this, this is exactly what Satan and the world want, right? They want you to be overtaken. They were swallowed up by the travelers coming into Jerusalem and who were caught up in the rage of Jesus' trial. And so they are then drowned out exactly what our enemy wants for us is for you to be drowned out for you to be overtaken by the events and the things of this world we must not lose our focus on christ satan wants you to lose your focus on the messiah king church this must not be where we fall we must look to christ we must see christ who reigns over all things And despite all the distractions, all the events of the world, all the hardship, all the pain, all the suffering, all the images, Jesus stands in victory and is in full control. This is the Savior that we worship. We must look to Christ. Verse 37, though, now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice, for all the miracles they had seen. The disciples began to shout and sing and praise God for all the things they had seen Jesus do. All the things they had seen Him with their own eyes do. And since they'd been following Jesus, they'd seen Him heal the sick. Right? He gave sight to the blind. He cast demons out and even brought dead people back to life. They had seen Jesus do many, many great things. Many great signs and wonders. And Luke places the importance here on seeing Jesus. These people have seen Jesus and the right response comes, right? They they see these things and they they praise God for what they've seen. But the miracles that they have seen, they do not compare to what Jesus is about to do. Jesus is about to give His life on the cross for His people. The greatest work is about to be completed, His death and resurrection. Nothing but praise can well up inside of us. Not only do we know the greatness of Jesus, but we, being the church 2,000 years later, we see the beauty. We know that Jesus has been raised. And that should well up in us. This sight should cause praise. It should cause us to rejoice. How do you praise God for the things that He's done in your life? How do you praise God for the things... He's done in your life. Do you praise God for the things that He's done or is doing in your life? It's, it can be difficult, right, to, to, to think about the right mindset, to think about the things that God has done because we always we have a list of things that we need Him to do, don't we? But how could we do this? Well, we could share with others. This is how God has worked in me and how He's working today. Share with a friend what God is doing Maybe you could journal these thoughts and these praises and that this could be a way for you to just get out on paper. This is what God is doing. Maybe it's through 
corporate prayer that we praise God together, which is why every, every first Sunday of the month, we come together and we praise God. We adore God for who He is because we believe that He is worthy to be praised. We believe that He should be praised. When we come and we sing about the beauty of the gospel, we are praising Him. How do you do this in your own life? But look at how they praise Him. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. The praise takes shape uh, from Psalm 118 in, in the backdrop of Zechariah. Jesus is blessed, right? He is honored as holy, but He's also King. Right, if we look to the other gospel accounts, um, the other gospel accounts use the word Messiah. But Luke here uses king to express to his Gentile readers exactly what is being said. Church, let me be very clear to you. Jesus being called king is a highly political statement. Jesus reigns as Lord over all kings and all lords and all presidents and all governors over the whole world. Jesus is Lord, flies in the face of the Roman Caesar of his day. The church is political. What I mean by that is it proclaims the lordship of one king. One king. No other kings. But it's not partisan. It doesn't pick a side. There is no sides to pick. We speak the truth based in God's word, based on what he has revealed to us. We do, the church does not pick sides of any country, and it must not act like any politician of any era. What kind of king are you looking for? What kind of king are you looking for? Is it a genie in the bottle? One that you get to ask whatever you want to and you get it? Is it one that thinks just like you do? Who never contradicts you? Or is it just a spiritual advisor? Or do you truly submit to Jesus as king of the entire universe? Not just of Wake Forest Youngsville, not just of North Carolina, not just of the United States, not just of North America, not just of the entire planet, but the entire universe. We have a king who reigns over every small detail, even the details on Pluto right now. That's the king that we worship, and that's the king that we submit our lives to. I love this quote from Danny Aiken. He says, The paradoxical kingship of Jesus shines so bright at this moment. He is royalty and deity wrapped in a single person, yet he moves forward in his declaration to be king in lowliness and in weakness and in service. He does not come in pomp and circumstance. He comes in meekness and lowliness. He comes in humility, yet simplicity. This is our King. This is our Messiah. And any, any person who would stand against this King is standing against the King who gave His life for them. Notice the words of praise here. They understand what's going on. Notice, why does Jesus come? Right, Jesus comes to bring peace. Again, with imagery from the Old Testament, Jesus comes as the Messiah coming down off of Mount Olives. But He does not come for war. 
Jesus could have came down off the mountain with a legion of angels and he could have raised war, not just against Rome, but against his own people because they had rejected him. He doesn't come that way, though. He comes to bring peace. Exactly what the angel promised at his birth. Right back in Luke chapter 2, what do the angels proclaim? Glory to God and peace in the highest heaven. Almost the same quote. This is what Jesus comes to bring. Peace on earth. Jesus comes to provide peace to his people. That really means salvation. That you can be made right with God, but also be made right with each other. And this sco- notice the scope of peace. It's not just earthly, it's heavenly. This is where Jesus is coming from. Jesus brings the kingdom of God with him so that we may know who God truly is. This is the Messiah that we rejoice in. A Messiah who's in full control. A Messiah who is king of the entire universe. The Messiah who doesn't come to judge us, but came to give his life for us. Often we criticize the disciples for getting things wrong, don't we? But here they get it right. They rejoice at what they've seen. Let's see the second response. We're going to look there at verse 39. The second response is the response of the Pharisees and it's rebuke. Rebuke. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. This is not surprising how the Pharisees act, right? We know that they have been Jesus' adversaries. And they've been at odds with him his entire ministry. And they've seen nothing in Jesus to make them believe that he is the Messiah. In this vein of sight, they are blind. They've seen him work. They've seen him speak. They've seen him preach. And yet they do not see anything in him for some reason. Because they are blind. They do not see Jesus for who he truly is. It's in this instance that they do not want, they don't want the parade of Jesus, right? Jesus' entry to provoke the Romans. The Pharisees understood the nature of this event. Normally kings or generals would have walked in and ridden and would have taken this kind of opportunity so this could have stirred up the Roman officials and then the Pharisees don't want that. You see, the Pharisees, they had power and they did not want that to be taken. It would have also been blasphemous to reenact this Old Testament event at all because it's about the Messiah. So they want, they want Jesus to, to rebuke his disciples. You're not the Messiah. Tell them you're not the Messiah. And if you remember, if you read through the gospel accounts, for most of each gospel account, Jesus says, no, do not go. You cannot speak about who I am. Right? Even the people that he heals, he says, do not go and tell who I am. Even the demons that he comes in contact with, they know who he is. And he silences them because they're not to tell. But now, now it's time. We need to know that this is the Messiah. But what's Jesus answered then? Look at verse 40. He answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, then the stones would cry out. If these disciples did not praise God for what they'd seen in Jesus, then the stones around them would cry out. The answer shows us a deep truth that our God deserves to be praised. Our God deserves to be acknowledged. And just like the disciples, praise is the right response for those who have seen the work of God. The question that our church and really any church must ask is, 
do we rightly praise God? Do we proclaim what He's done in and through us? Do we proclaim what God has done every week as we gather? We gather here weekly to praise God for the gospel that Jesus came in the form of a man, was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, and then gave His life on the cross willingly, but was raised three days later. Do we praise God for that? Do we proclaim what God has done to other people uh, in us to other people? Do we share about what has happened? Or do we, in sense of being rebuked by the Pharisees, do we actually, we actually shrink back and not share anything about what God has done in our lives? Do we tell others about what He is doing and what He has done? Have you ever tried to silence a screaming toddler? can be fairly difficult, right? Maybe you have good re- reasons. Maybe they are having a tantrum. Maybe they want you to see them. Graham is in this mode where he does something that he enjoys. He, he, he says, Mama, Daddy, he says, look at me. Look at what I'm doing. Whether you have good intentions or not, they want you to see them, don't they? They want you to see them. Whether it's, whether it's because they're angry or because they're happy, they want you to see them. This event is so momentous that it deserves a response. It deserves to be seen much more than the toddler. In all aspects of creation, better respond. They will respond because this is the Messiah coming for his people. The coming of the Messiah demands praise. The primary point of the saying is silencing the disciples and even silencing Jesus would not stop, would not negate that Jesus is king over all things. You could silence Jesus, you could silence his disciples, but it wouldn't change the true reality that Jesus is in full control of the situation. It would not stop God's plans. And in fact, those stones would declare what reality really is. The Pharisees, they, re- they reject Jesus by calling for rebuke. They miss him because they do not rightly see him. What's this third response? We're going to continue in verse 41. This third response is the response of Jerusalem. It's rejection. They reject him. Look at verse 41. As he approached and saw the city, he wept for it, saying, If you knew this day what would bring peace, but now is hidden from your eyes, they do not see Jesus rightly. They do not see him. For Luke, he describes Jesus weeping for Jerusalem before he enters. He's still outside the city. He's still coming down to make his point that the Jews reject Jesus as their Messiah. And Jesus' tears, they come from the knowledge of their future. That war is coming. We know from history that, that Jerusalem... They, they rose up against Rome, and Rome squelched that harshly. And Jesus knows this future. Jesus' tears comes from the knowledge that these people have chosen the way of the sword over the way of peace. He knows what Jerusalem is choosing. Look at verse 43. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in your midst, because you did not recognize the time when God 
visited you. Jerusalem doesn't know its own future. Jesus' tears come because they have rejected the peace that he will offer them. They rejected him. You see there at the end of verse 44 that you did not recognize the time when God visited you. They did not receive Jesus as king. As I told you, this peace, it, it, it relates to a heavenly peace with God. That, think of Romans 5, that we've been made at peace with Him. But it's also the, in the context of external peace with other people, particularly with Rome, which will ultimately destroy them after they rebel. And Jesus knows this. He knows that they have rejected what He really brings. Jesus comes as God's Messiah in the name of the Lord. To reject Jesus is to reject God. I have to ask, what Messiah have you accepted today? Is it this one who comes in peace and humility? Or is it, or is it a Messiah that you've conjured up in our own that we've conjured up in our own minds that we think this is what he should be like? This is what he should do. This is what he should do for me. What Messiah have you received? Church, let me just acknowledge that we've been secularized into thinking that there's nothing spiritual beyond this life. We have a world telling you that, yeah, you know, you know all the right answers. A barrier has been placed between us and the supernatural, and we believe with our technology and our medicine that we, yeah, there's nothing out there. And there's been a wool at some level placed on our eyes that we believe that, yeah, we don't need that king. We know all the answers to ourselves. All the answers are inside of us. When in fact, they're not. What are the things that you are placing your supernatural trust in? What are the things that you're placing your supernatural trust in? What are the things, people, or places, or events do you believe will save you? Maybe not eternally but you believe it will make your life better now. What are those things? Is it Jesus? Is it his life, his death, his resurrection? Or are there other things in your life buying for your trust? What are the things in your life that are stealing that trust away? They're siphoning it from Jesus. They want you to look away from him. If you're beginning to look at other sources or other people more than you look to Jesus, get rid of them. Get off of social media and don't look at it anymore because the world wants you to focus on other things other than Jesus. And church, we for too long have looked at other things other than the humble Messiah King. And if we want the church to reign and be beautiful and talk about the Jesus of the gospel, then we must get rid of all this stuff. We must get rid of all of it. This is the Messiah that we come after. This is the Messiah that we have to submit our lives to. That's what the world wants for us, to believe that, yes, we, we have our focus on Jesus, but it's really these other things. And it's going to destroy you. It's going to destroy me if we're not careful. They want you to be, think that you're looking at Jesus when you're really not. What's your response today? What's your response? It's this Jesus who enters into Jerusalem humbly to give his life for us. 
to offer peace and salvation to you and to me. This peace is not just one time event, but it's, a, it's the way of Christianity. It's the Christian life. Christianity is about following the King of Peace daily, laying our lives down for the sake of His kingdom and for the sake of others. If you're a disciple today, I encourage you to see Jesus, this Jesus that the Bible speaks of. Look to the one who submitted his life to, to God and gave his life for us. See the humble Messiah who brings peace to us. And church, we can rejoice. Why? Because there is nothing that can take that peace away. Ever. Nothing in this world can take that away from you or from us. Although we've experienced brokenness, although we experience the brokenness all around us, don't we? There's an eternal peace. As Paul says, a peace that transcends all understanding. The peace that we have is not going away. Yes, it's in the future, but it's one that we can hold on to that helps us live in this daily life. There are all kinds of events and things going on around us. But Christ reigns. Christ reigns. And Christianity is secure not because of any, anything else other than Jesus. Nothing else is securing us in this world but Jesus. I beg you to focus on this King. This is what Luke wants from us. Would you see Him and would you worship Him? Would you not rebuke His disciples and would you not reject Him as the Messiah King? If you're not a follower of Christ today, I want you to know this peace. I want you to know that you can trust Him more than anything else in this world. You know, deep down, that this world's broken. And the only thing that can change that is Jesus. Because He submitted His life to death for you. For you. You may be thinking right now, Jesus, he couldn't have died for me. I promise you he did. I promise you he did. I pray that all of us today, whether it's because we received Jesus at a young age and we've been walking with him faithfully, or whether it's because we're, we have just recently submitted our life to him, would we receive Jesus as the humble Messiah King? who offers peace to us that we can experience and know and share with those around us. Pray with me. God, we, we need you to help us focus on Jesus. We can't do this on our own. God, would you give us the sight and the perseverance to focus on the King? We need you to do that in us. Jesus, we proclaim that you reign over all things at all times, in all events, in all circumstances. Would that truth be what helps us walk daily as your servant, as we love you and love others? We need you, Lord, to do this in us. Jesus, we, we're so thankful that you reign as king today. And all the events that go out of control, out of our control, we know that you are in control. Jesus, this morning, we praise you for who you are.
as king of all the universe. We ask this in your name and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.